I am Connie Drowsberg. I spent um, about 18 years of my nursing career taking care of burn patients in the Midwest area of the United States. Um, then I went to Uganda, where my I went to the Congo, actually, and then taught nursing there, and then I went to the Uganda, and my major ministry there was teaching nursing, but then one day I got a call from the First Lady's office, because we had, she had been a patron of our HIV AIDS program, and her secretary said, the First Lady seems to think that you took care of burn patients in America. Is that true? And you sort of look at the phone and go, how do they know these things? And I said, yes, that's true. And she said, there are some Dutch plastic surgeons coming to Uganda. Would you help them open a burn unit? And as a visitor in the country, the right answer to that question is, oh, I would love to do that. So that's how I got involved in burn care in the developing world. (laughs) I really thought that I had left burn care behind in the United States. I really had said to the Lord one day in the burn unit at Detroit Receiving Hospital, I will do anything to get out of here. After 18 years of this, I've sort of had enough. And um, ended up in Uganda never expecting to do burn care again. But here we are, talking about burn care in the developing countries. Um, I have about five hours worth of material here, so I need to know who you are and what you want to know about burn care so we can kind of flip through these slides and talk about what's appropriate. Um, So do we have anybody that's a practicing physician who does burn care? Um, I don't do burn care, but I travel in Africa, and burns have been the most frustrating thing that I've treated. Oh, okay. All right. um, Eventually, I want to go long term, and so... Mm -hmm. So we should spend some, some time in actual treatment. Okay, yeah. Um, anybody interested in prevention? I am. <laughs> um, prevention, we'll talk, we'll do what treatment. Do I need to go through the whole physiology of the skin and all that jazz? Can we skip through all that? Okay. All right, so let's get started here. Um, you guys know all that stuff. Yeah, I just didn't know who the audience was, so we'll slip, skip through those slides quickly. I, I do want to talk about burn prevention just quickly. Um, because 50% of all burns could be prevented, really. Um, most, burn hap- most burns happen. Just It's an instant of carelessness. Um, in Uganda, and I apologize to those of you who might be from Asia or other parts of the world, I am very Africa-focused. I, that's the only place I have any experience in burn care at all. But I think most of these things are applicable everywhere. In Uganda, what happens is the mom decides that she needs to run to the market as the sun sets, and she leaves the baby in the hut or in the little two-room house with a candle burning while she runs to the market. And the candle tips over, and the baby's bedclothes start on fire. That was the most typical burn we saw in the burn unit. The vast majority of our patients were under five years old. Um, The other thing that happens in developing countries, of course, is because they cook under open fires, and or over open fires, the baby toddles into the fire, and, or the baby, the toddler spills over the beans, or the little guy who's playing soccer, the ball hits the bean pot and the beans spill all over him. Those are very typical of the kind of accidents that we see. So obviously, most burn patients are victims of their own actions or the actions of the people the inaction of the people who should be looking after them. So that's really the majority of the accidents that we saw. We saw a few. Um, serious gas, gasoline, petrol burns from tanker trucks that went down over the mountain and burst into flames or were in car accidents. Um, But that was the unusual thing. Um, We didn't see a lot of that. We did see a lot of acid burns. 
there's a, and, and typically in Asia that happens, and it's from the Asian, the Indian influence in Uganda. Um, there's the typical love triangles, two women fighting over the same man, so one throws acid in the face of the other. Sometimes they end up with an innocent victim, like the baby on their back, those kind of things. And then there's a real shame part of that accident, so they don't seek help. So the acid keeps burning and burning and burning. And then they finally arrive with us with faces that are destroyed. And those, those are pretty typical, the kind of accidents we would see. All of them preventable. Um, so that's, oops, get the thing working here. Um, those of you in Asia, no chai. We know chai in Uganda. I would say, would say to the mothers, you know, if it's hot enough for chai, it's hot enough to burn the baby. So many times that they would be holding their baby and nursing them and drinking chai at the same time, and the baby would jerk, and the hot tea would spill all over the baby. So this is one of the things we talked about. Just don't do that. You know, don't hold your baby and drink tea at the same time, and we can prevent a lot of those accidents. And then, of course, the kids. This is really typical. We do this in America, too. If your clothes catch on fire, stop, drop on the ground, and roll. Now, that's a real problem in Africa when they're rolling in the dirt, but it's much better than getting an extensive burn. And it's something that you can teach primary kids. They understand that, and they're very enamored with the whole stop, drop on the ground, and roll to put out the flames. But we don't really see that many flame injuries in Uganda, really all things considered. Um, it's really hot liquids, hot um, soups, hot beans, those kind of things. Um, just communicating prevention, I just want to throw out a couple ideas you need to think about when you're talking about burn prevention, who your audience is, because it's very different from the urban cities to the rural areas. What, what the causes of the burn are, what their um, resources are, how to take care of that burn, where they go to get help, um, the kind of things that they're involved in. You know, I had one little guy who was from a wealthy family, and he actually pulled the pot off the stove and poured it over his head. That doesn't happen in the rural area because they don't cook on stoves. They cook on the open flame, um, and the kids toddle into them, so you have burned hands or burned knees or those kind of things. Um, are you going to teach the mom or are you going to teach the big sister? We found out that it's really the seven-year-old sister in the village that's taking care of the baby. So your prevention talks need to be directed at that big sister, not at the mom, because the mom is out in the field all day, and she's not paying attention. to the, She's left the seven-year-old responsible for the toddler and the baby. So we found that teaching prevention to a mom was good, but she didn't pass that on to the child that she was leaving responsible for the, the little siblings. Um, and then the local language. I mean, certainly Uganda is an English-speaking country. Zaire, where I also worked, is a French-speaking country. But if you're really dealing with people in the village, you need to know a local language. What's their literacy level? What, I mean, can you, can you give them written materials about prevention? Or do they need to have pictures? And if they have pictures, can they even read the picture? People who are involved in literacy education tell me, I don't know anything about that, but they tell me that people need to learn how to read pictures in the same way that they need to learn how to read words. Because nobody sat with them when they were a toddler and said, A is for apple, B is for boy, and linked words with pictures. So think about what kind of materials that you're dealing with. And then we did a lot of work. The Dutch had a lot of funding for us to do a lot of work with national awareness. Um, radio announcements, because everyone in Africa listens to the radio. BBC and 
um, all those kind of stations are available, and there are well over 100 FM stations in Uganda. So we could throw out burn prevention radio spots all the time, and that, that was really helpful for us. So see about the availability of those kind of things as well. But we'll just skip through all this. Um, I want to talk about some of the severity factors just because it helps you decide if you've got an inpatient or an outpatient to deal with. Um, so the extent of the burn, what's the percent of the body surface area that's burned? And you, all got, you guys all know the rule of nines. There are other more sophisticated methods, the Burkow method that comes with a chart to deal with that down to the half percentage, those kind of things. But if you have a good idea of the extent of the burn, that's, that's pretty good. I mean, we're not doing research on 27.5% burn and how they survive. You know, you just want to take care of the burn. Um, what's the depth? That's very significant. You need to know how to determine the depth of the burn because a superficial burn or a partial thickness burn should heal within three weeks. And if you've got a wound that's open longer than three weeks, then you're going to start to think about massive kind of scarring just because of the way the colloid tissue works. The longer the colloid is exposed, the more curly... I'll just use those terms, the more curly it gets and the more scarring it produces. So if you can close that wound within three weeks, it keeps the collagen fibers flat and it lessens the scarring. But anytime you're dealing people, with people with darker skin tones, you're going to get more scarring no matter what you do. And then you've got the keloid formers that you don't know until the injury happens, whether they form keloids or not. The problems with keloids then is if you go to intervene with those, you can make them worse and make the scar worse just because they'll form more keloid. One of the plastic surgeons I worked with was Ugandan, and he studied in Italy, and he was probably the most skilled plastic surgeon I've ever met anywhere in the world. And we were dealing with a lot of the, um, not necessarily burn, burn victims, but the victims of the Kony rebels from northern Uganda where they would cut off people's ears and lips and noses. And he would always reconstruct their faces, but he said, you know, I can't really construct, reconstruct ears. There's just no way to do that. And because the African skin produces so much keloid, I can't make ears for these people. So it was just one of those things that you really need to consider. And then he would, when he would find someone who was a keloid former, he really wouldn't do as much reconstruction because it just wasn't possible. It would just make it worse. The age of the patient is significant. You really need to admit anyone who's under five, at least overnight, um, or anyone who's older. We don't have a huge elderly population in Uganda. 53% of the Ugandan population is under 15 right now. But we do see some elderly people. Um, so someone who's elderly with a past medical history, you want to observe them very closely. And then it depends on the body part. We would always admit anyone with a burned hand or a burned face. And then we would look at joints. So those are your priorities, actually, is the face, then the hand, and then the joints. Face, you're looking at cosmetic outcome. Hands, you're looking at functional outcome. And joints, you're looking at functional outcome. Um, so you want to prevent all those kind of complications, really. You want to give people a functional hand. You want, with the face, you really want to be able to do good care so that they can stick their hand out and say, hi, my name is Connie. That takes seven seconds. But if people can't make eye contact with them for seven seconds, they're not a person anymore. And, you know, in, in these cultures, to be able to greet and shake hands and talk to one another is so significant. I met a patient one time who is not a Muslim, but she wore a burqa 
because only her eyes showed because her face was so scarred. And that, to me, was just really heartbreaking because she was not a person in her culture anymore because she just didn't have a face to deal with. So people wouldn't talk to her. But when she had the burqa on, at least they would greet her. And she'd say, I'm not a Muslim. She said, but I have to cover my face. So that's the goal. Seven seconds when you're talking about faces. Um, So, yeah, so if the total body surface area is less than 20% and it doesn't involve the hands or the face, you can probably treat those people as an outpatient. That's fine. And some of you may not have inpatient facilities. I understand that. I happen to work at the National Hospital where the Dutch put in this big facility for us. Um, Kids over five, you can probably not admit them, but you have to make sure that there's someone responsible, older, not the seven-year-old, but older at home to take care of them. And then really adults, you just base it on, you know, what kind of complications are we dealing with? We don't, we're beginning to see a bit of heart disease, a bit of diabetes in Uganda. If you have those kind of things to deal with, there's somebody that you really want to watch. Um, And then if you're going to treat someone as an outpatient, just really assess the fact, can they make it to the clinic? How far away from the clinic do they live? Can they get it? Can they walk? Can they bring the child? Can they get on a taxi? Can they get there? And how often do you want to change that dressing? How often do you want to see that person? Um, Or, you know, can they take, can you give them supplies and can they take care of that at home? Those are just assessments that you need to make if you're not going to admit people. So the goal of any kind of burn care, actually, is to close the wound as soon as possible, within three weeks if you can. I know here in the United States we do early excision and grafting. Once the patient is hemodynamically stable within 24 hours, we can take them to the OR, excise that whole wound, and cover it with something, whether it's artificial skin or heterograft or their own homograft, whatever you've got available. We can't really do that in the developing world. We don't have artificial skin. We don't even have homograft pig skin. You know, imagine dealing with a Muslim patient and you've got pig skin to close their wound. That's not going to work, but we don't really have that availability even. Um, and then what you really want to do is maintain the function of the joints. Now, how are you going to do that? We didn't have a physical therapist or an occupational therapist on the staff, even at the National Hospital. And I was constantly trying to figure out how do I make splints? It's like I knew burn care. I'd watched the occupational therapist make splints for years. I'd watched the physical therapist do range of motion exercises. I knew how to do all that, but I didn't have any material. So I had this brilliant idea one day of, well, we could just use plaster. Plaster's here. Well, you can. You can make a splint out of plaster. The problem is that once it gets contaminated with burn drainage, then what do you do with it? You're not going to put a dirty splint back on a clean wound, so you're going to make plaster splints every day. Well, that becomes not cost effective. So what do you have that you could use to make a splint out of? I tried cutting up plastic basins, you know, and just putting that on, and sometimes that worked. But um, if the patient was older, the force of the contraction would really pop that piece of plastic right off that joint. It's just very frustrating for me. Because I felt like, you know, if we can prevent those contractures, we can save a lot of time and energy for those patients. And you can get, you can return flexion, but you can't return extension. You've got to maintain their extension, and then you can do exercises to return flexion. But if you get this kind of a contracture, which is very classic in a burned arm and hand, 
you've got a non-functional wing. You don't have an arm. So you need to prevent all of that. The hand will contract like this, becomes a claw, and it's not useful. But if you can have, maintain an opposition of the thumb, you've got a functional hand. So just think about all those kind of things, the, the whole neck and chin kind of issue. Do you want their chin attached to their chest? No, we don't want that. So you've got to keep their neck extended somehow. And it, it's great because, you know, all the, um, what do we call those? Those neck braces that you use when someone has a whiplash injury, those are great. They're absolutely great to, to keep their chin away from their chest. Um, and we see a lot of chest and neck and chest burns in kids in Uganda. I'm not sure why that happened, but just think about the function. You're always thinking about cosmetics. I know you think, oh, it's just Africa. Let's not think cosmetics. But you want to think about how they look to their society. So cosmetics, their appearance, and their function are really the priorities. And then we'll just skip over this stuff because you guys know all this um, depth of wound. Do you know how to assess that? I'll just look at that. We'll look at a couple of pictures. Um, this little guy, obviously this is a superficial wound. This is the kind of wound you expect to heal within three weeks. The problem with darker skin is that you can never guarantee uniformity of color after the burn heals, but you can watch the color come back. You know, the melanocytes come right through the hair follicles, and it's kind of fun. It's like a miracle. You get to watch it every day. It's like, oh, look at this wound heal, and you watch the color come back, but it's never the same uniform color as it was before, just because it's never even. You know, the wound is not even, so you destroy some of the melanocytes and some of them are still there. Um, so yeah, this is a kid we admitted just because he had a burned hand and we were worried about his chest and neck, but he's probably less than 20% here, but obviously hungry, that was a good sign. Um, this is one of the rare flame burns that we saw, but obviously full thickness. It's a little um, misleading here. This looks partial thickness, but it's a brand new wound. Here's that leathery appearance that you get with a full thickness wound. Um, yeah, and this needed to be totally grafted. I think this patient's percent was close to 65, as I recall. Um, didn't survive. You know, it's unheard of today in America that a 65% burn doesn't survive. You know, our unprecedented survival is well over 98%. I mean, I took care of a patient one time with a 96.4% burn, and he came to me in my office when I was the head nurse and said to me six months later, he said, I'm going to Florida water skiing, Connie. What kind of sunscreen should I wear? And I said, you shouldn't be in the sun at all. He goes, no, maybe you didn't hear me. I'm going to Florida water skiing. What kind of sunscreen should I wear? I said, wear a wetsuit. <laughs> but with those kind of burns don't survive in um, Uganda, and there are multiple reasons for that. Even though the Dutch had provided for us everything we needed to take care of the patients, the nurses didn't believe that. The nurses just didn't believe that with this patient, just off the top of my head, let's say we calculated a fluid requirement of 19 liters in the first 24 hours. The nurses would say to me, we can't do that. First of all, I'd say, why not? And they'd say, well, swelling means heart failure, means restrict fluids. Now, I had spent six months teaching them burn care. We talked about, you know, increased capillary permeability, where the fluids go, why burn patients have swelling. 
but they had learned nursing. They were not my BSN graduates, I must say. <laughs> These were the diploma nursing graduates hired by the hospital. They had learned rote nursing. Swelling means heart failure, always means restrict fluids, and they could not translate a different concept. So we would have the IVs running, and we would be resuscitating. We'd be getting 30 cc's of urine every hour, just like you're supposed to, and then I would leave, and they'd turn down the IV. Because the other thing they didn't believe was that there was really enough IV fluids to give this one person 19 liters. Because what they really thought was, when the next patient comes, there's not going to be any fluid for them. So we need to share, because we're a communal culture. And one person doesn't really have the same value. I mean, we will go to the end of the earth to save one life in America, no matter what it costs. But for them, it was like, no, if I give him 19 liters, I won't have anything for the next guy. And I would take them outside, and I would show them the three containers that the Dutch people had brought us, filled with IV fluids, filled with gauze, filled with everything we needed, and they still didn't believe it. So in two and a half years, not one patient who should have survived with intensive burn care did. It was the most frustrating thing because we couldn't, we didn't get to that point of getting through the cultural barrier. So that's just a little aside as a nursing educator. You need to understand who you're teaching and what you're trying to teach them um, because it didn't work when the Dutch surgeons yelled at them. I mean, that wasn't going to help. So we had to go, I kept going all the way back to remember our classes, remember about increased capillary permeability, remember how the fluids are leaking out of the vessels. It's not heart failure. This guy was healthy before this accident happened. Over and over and over and over. We did that for two and a half years. And I'll probably step back in and do a little more of that. But that was the most frustrating thing for me, is to have them, I would come in the next day and they'd always say, your patient died. What do you mean my patient died? It's like, but it was always, and I always felt to me, yeah, if I could be there seven days a week, 24 hours a day, I could probably resuscitate these patients. But they were always my patients that died. It's never their patient that died. This is just an acid burn. I just wanted to show you this, the appearance when they come in. It's pretty remarkable. And then 15 days later, what we're dealing with. So obviously needing to be grafted. We, we weren't doing, we did some early excision and grafting, but the amount of um, colloids and crystalloids that you need to do that kind of surgery just was really difficult. So we went through this already. Um, you want to know, this is just on the second part here, you want to know how the burn happened just because it, it gives you some clues about what you're going to be dealing with. You know, was it a hot liquid? Was it a flame? Was it an acid? You know, when I was in Detroit, we were treating acid burns from the auto industry. We would put the patients in our hydrotherapy tank for 12 hours to dilute the acid. Well, that was something we couldn't do in Uganda. But they didn't come to us till 24, 48 hours later in the first place. But, you know, in Detroit, immediately they'd go in the hydrotherapy tank and we had a nurse with them for 12 hours back there as we diluted out the acid and kept changing the water in our hydrotherapy tank and those kind of things. That wasn't possible. Did it happen inside a house or outside? Because you're thinking smoke inhalation. If it was a, a flame, a fire, a house fire, 
um, which happened a lot in Uganda. So we always knew that these little babies that we saw probably had smoke inhalation. And then you're, trying, you're thinking about the products of combustion as well. What was burning in the house? What was it that they inhaled besides smoke? Um, so you're always thinking about their inhalation injury. You know, it's that internal part of the burn that you don't see. Um, I'm not going to go through all these phases of burn care. You know, the emergent phase is when you're trying to get them hemodynamically stable. The acute phase, you're really focused on the wound. Rehab, um, getting them back into a functional place in society. We'll just go through that quickly. I'm seeing times disappearing here. Um, the emergent care, if you happen to be around in order to do first aid. I found, too, that um, in Uganda we didn't have a lot of first responders. People don't know what to do. Um, Sometimes when they would, justice in Uganda is swift and severe, and sometimes they would catch a thief and put a tire over them and douse them with gasoline and set them on fire. And some, once in a while, we would see those people in the burn unit. But, you know, the neighborhood wasn't going to help that person. That was, they were the thief, and they were being repaid for what they did, and that was the choice of justice and so there's no first aid that's going to happen because they don't want to help that person. In the same way that if they see someone having an epileptic seizure, they're not going to help them either if they happen to fall into the cooking fire because they don't want the spirit of epilepsy to jump on them. So we saw some of those patients too. They had a seizure, fell into the fire, but it was a severe injury because no one's going to pull them out because you don't want that spirit of epilepsy to get on you. So you have to understand those little culture, cultural things as well. So first aid is not really there. <laughs> I also found that when people were admitted to casualty in the hospital, I would, I would sometimes make rounds in the casualty ward just to see if there are any burn patients there because no one would tell us. They would wait till the next morning when our doctors made rounds and say, oh, yeah, this patient came in late yesterday afternoon or this patient came in during the night and they're in the holding area, the surgical holding area, next to a huge window that's open on a bed with no sheets and no dressings. And they've been there for 12 hours. And now they're hypothermic, besides, even in Uganda. Because it does get a little chilly in the building at night. So we did a lot of education with the emergency room staff. It's like, please let us know when a burn patient comes. We'll come and get them right away. You don't even need to take care of them. We'll come for them. But it was still that learning process of, oh, yeah, these people we can send right to the burn unit. And we were just one floor below them. Um, so, you know, but anyway, first aid, maintain the airway, obviously. Um, and you need to assess with burn patients for any kind of other injury. Every burn patient will be alert and oriented. That's the sad thing about burns. They can tell you how it happened unless they have a head injury. So if we would see a burn patient who wasn't making sense to us, we'd go, you know, we have two life-threatening injuries here and two injuries that are incompatible with treatment. You know, the head injury, you want, you want to restrict fluids so the brain doesn't swell. The burn injury, you want to give all those fluids to prevent shock. So that's a real sad combination of injuries. But you want to be aware of that if it happens. You know, so if they're, if they're not alert you've got another problem on your hand. If you see other external bleeding, the burn doesn't bleed, obviously, because the vessels are coagulated. So if you see excessive bleeding, you need to think about the other injury that they have. 
um, burns to the face and neck, especially in an enclosed space, you want to maintain this baby's airway. Get that, in, you know, intubate them as soon as you can before the swelling really closes off the airway. That was the other thing. I had a terrible time trying to get the patient's head up. You know, in burn care, like, that's like the mantra. Keep their head up because we don't want all that swelling around the airway. Um, so, you know, sometimes the beds we had, the head of the bed wouldn't go up or it wouldn't stay up. So how can you help that? You know, can you find some way to keep the head of the bed up to keep that swelling down, especially for somebody with a burned face or someone that was burned inside a house or inside a vehicle? Um, fluid therapy, do I need to go through all that, all of you? Massive quantities. You know, there are, there are formulas to calculate out that out based on percentage. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about oral rehydration fluid. And speaking of oral rehydration, I should have brought my water over here. There are a few studies out that talk about using um, World Health Organization ORS fluids for burn re rehydration. Um, and actually, all the studies say is that it works with small to moderate burns, like we're talking 5 to 10 percent, unfortunately. Um, I would like to see us try to use it in, a, in some bigger burns, like with nasogastric tubes, especially out in the village where you might not have access. I mean, anyone can make their own ORS. You know, it's pretty simple. It, you know, and that formula is there. You all know that formula, I'm sure. Um, but just to get at, when you can't get adequate IV fluids or when you have a huge, huge mass casualty situation, a few years prior to the burn unit opening at the National Hospital, there was a gasoline tanker truck that exploded, fell off the road and exploded, and there were 80 victims in a town near the Kenya border. Um, and I just happened to be in that town doing HIV-AIDS prevention work. And one of my team members said, you know, this is where all the burn patients are from that tanker accident. And I said, well, maybe I'll run over to the hospital and see what's going on. Well, they had, you know, just their whole hospital spilled with these burn patients. And they were dying, like, in rapid succession because they didn't have IV fluids. They didn't have... They didn't have any of the supplies that they needed, nor could they get them to Kampala, which was four hours away. Um, but I often thought that maybe if they had tried a little oral rehydration, it might have worked with some of these patients. Um, we would always wait till we heard bowel sounds before we fed a burn patient in the olden days when I started burn care in 1974, only to realize that we were losing burn patients from malnutrition in those days. Now we give burn patients tube feedings 24 hours a day by drip into their... Um, tubes. And I think if we did oral rehydration in the same way, it might be successful. But that's just my theory. Nothing scientific. The studies talk about 5 to 10 percent burns. Well, 5 to 10 percent burns is going to survive no matter what you do. So, <laughs> so I'm like, great. I thought this was a great idea until I actually looked at the research. But it, I think it's worth a try. <coughs> so we talked about the wound. The goal is to close the wound as quickly as possible, prevent infection, both in the wound itself and systemically. 
don't think that IV antibiotics help the wound because they never reach the surface of the wound. So if you're dealing with septicemia, your IV or oral antibiotics, IV antibiotics, oral antibiotics are great for that, but you always need to teach the, treat the burn wound itself with topical agents. Um, I don't know about the rest of the world, but silver sulfidizing is available in East Africa. Matter of fact, the joint medical stores in Kampala manufactured silver sulfidizing for us. Um, you can get a lot of those drugs out of Holland, EDA, the drug um, supplier for most of Africa, has that as well. Um, we did some, we used some third solution, which is kind of an ancient practice, one-third water, one-third saline, one-third hydrogen peroxide, especially for faces, super, more superficial wounds, like that baby with all the blisters. You could treat that with thirds. Um, one-third sterile water, one-third saline, one-third hydrogen peroxide. You never want to use full-strength hydrogen peroxide on any wound. Um, we did some stuff with ears and noses with betadine because it tends to penetrate the cartilage a little bit better. We would also that we would use that in a half solution most of the time, half hydrogen peroxide, half betadine, and it would save some of the cartilage of the ear. Um, those are just some of the tricks we learned. Um, Silvidine is probably the best choice even today. Um, the antimicrobial benefits of silver doesn't seem to be resistant. To, bacteria don't seem to be resistant at this point in time, miraculously. Um, and then if you, you know, those of you physicians in the room, if you can graft as soon as possible, that's very helpful. Um, if you don't have a dermatome, I'm, I'm not a surgeon, but I've seen many, many times postage stamp grafting done. It works. It does create more scarring. Um, the Dutch were meshing our grafts, and I was sort of horrified because that's a practice we don't do in America anymore because of the scarring. You mesh the skin, and you create more room for scars. You want, if you can, you want to use just the whole full thickness of or yeah, it's a partial thickness graft, but you know what I mean. The whole piece of skin and don't mesh it. You mesh it to expand it. If you don't have any options and it's a huge wound and you're trying to close it, then I'd go with a mesh graft and deal with the scarring later. But I would never, ever, ever put a mesh graft on anyone's face because you really want to deal with cosmetics. It's 1% of their body. So, you know, you can afford to use a nice graft on somebody's face. And you want to try to match the skin as much as you can. If you have an area in the neck that you could take a graft from and move it to their face, then that's what you want to do. You don't want to take a thigh and move it on someone's face, if you can help it. Sometimes you don't have the option. They just don't have any skin available. But, you know, choose your best graft because you know, you're just buying them seven seconds. Um, and then try to do that as soon as possible. You know, if, you, if you're approaching three weeks and it's evident that that wound's not going to heal, then graft it. Or excise it right away if you can, if you know it's full thickness. Little post-it stamp grafts, the problem with that is sometimes we take them a little bit too thicker and we present, prevent, or we present another full thickness wound. So be careful if you're doing that. It's possible, though. Just, you know, pick up a little forcep and take that piece of skin off and move it if you don't have a dermatome to do that, because you're trying to decrease the incidence of scarring and contracture. 
And the faster you close a wound on a joint, so I've said this before, but your priorities are face, hands, joints. So as soon as you can cover that burn over that joint, it will prevent the contracture from forming. But you're dealing with children as well. So remember that as they grow, their grafted skin doesn't fit anymore. So they'll grow and the skin will continue to contract. So with a burned kid, you're looking at 20 years of reconstructive surgery, usually, because they're going to keep growing and their skin's going to keep shrinking. So you need to keep track of those kids if you can. That's the other thing. Many of them are lost to follow-up. And you've done the best you can, and then they're out in the village, and there they are, all contracted. But you can rescue them and do reconstruction at any point in time. Um, so I just talked about topical agents. I want to talk about honey and ghee. People go, oh, voodoo. Um, actually, there are research studies that show that honey is antimicrobial. I always laughed at the nurses in Uganda because they said only honey from Busheni, Western Uganda, worked. That was the best kind. And I said, and where are you from? Busheni. <laughs> okay. But honey, and those superficial wounds, especially with your pediatric patients, ghee is lard. It's purified animal fat. Um, but they would, the nurses would mix that together 50-50, and we would put it on pediatric burn patients, and we would only change their dressing every three days. And it worked. And they would heal. And I thought, it's a miracle. God knows that honey works. Um, so, yeah, so... That just, there's a later slide, but let me talk about it now because I'm thinking about it. And I say I only have 10 minutes left. I want to leave time for a few questions. Um, you need to think about some of the cultural beliefs that they have and what they do to treat wounds and why they're doing what they're doing. I remember I was visiting missionary friends in Rwanda, and the wife said to me, our neighbor has a kid with a burned arm and she put rabbit fur on it. Can I bring that kid to see you? I said, yeah, sure, that's fine. Well, sure enough, this little girl's arm was covered in white rabbit fur. And I thought, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And I said, well, let's just wash it so I can see the wound. Do you know what? That wound was healed under the rabbit fur. Anybody have any idea why that worked? Well, it does. It has to do with epithelial cells. They pulled the fur from the rabbit's chest, and as they pulled out the fur, they pulled out epithelial cells. So they actually did a heterograft in that superficial wound. Those little rabbit epithelial cells helped the American epithelial cells join together, and the wound healed underneath it. And I said, let them keep using rabbit fur. There's a physiologic reason here why this works. So don't change that. It's weird, it's bizarre, and in our scientific mind, it should never work. But the rabbit, the fur from the rabbit's chest is clean. It wasn't, they weren't taking it from his feet. They weren't taking it from his back. It was his chest, which is the cleanest part of the rabbit, I came to find out. And they were just patting it on the wound, and it worked. So do a little investigation before you go, ah, don't do that. Because that was my first response, as was the missionary's wife's response. Help this child with rabbit fur on um, The other thing they like to do in Uganda is to take the powdered antibiotics before they reconstitute them out of the vial yeah. and pour that on the wound. Don't do that. <laughs> it's, it's just, I always think maybe when it interacts with some of the burned fluid, it might become active. But, you know, 
powdered antibiotics aren't doing anything until you add water, sterile water to them. So uh, that's a battle I still fight in Uganda. It's like, I mean, if you want, I always say, if you want to go ahead and dilute the antibiotic and impregnate the dressing with that, that would be okay. But don't put it on there dry. So those kind of things are going on. Um, pain management. This is obviously a child who's not comfortable. <laughs> this is one of my sad pictures. I'm like, oh, I feel bad for that baby. Pain management, nutrition therapy, position and splinting. Those are really significant. Nutrition, I can't emphasize enough. The amount of caloric needs that burn patients have because their metabolism is kicked up. And so they need way more calories than they need when they're just toddlers. You know, probably twice as much. We used to do calorie calculations too back in, the, in my days in burn care in America. And we would, we would negotiate with patients. You need... 3,400 calories today, what are you going to eat that will get you to that point? And we knew the caloric content of everything. And we would make these incredible milkshakes for patients where the osmolarity was sky high and then the patient would throw up because we just couldn't, they couldn't contain it. Ice cream and eggs and, you know, in those days the um, Joint Commission didn't pay attention to the fact that we had our own little kitchen and we were concocting these things. They don't do that anymore, but... um, but, you know, think about what this kid will eat that's familiar to him. You know, if it's rice and beans, make sure they eat twice as many rice and beans. And, and then you, this kid has a nasogastric tube. You know, we could get a hold of milk that their mom never could get a hold of, and we would feed them milk. Or, and if you've got a nursing baby, make sure that that mom is still nursing that baby for the fluid content and the nutritional content. Um, because, really, I can't believe in the 70s we really did lose burn patients from malnutrition. How could that? And we just didn't think about it. We were doing everything else. Um, yeah, so just pay attention to the, to the complications. This was actually our burn unit at Malago. Yeah, pretty sophisticated. Huh? I was pretty proud of it. Um, I have to say here, I didn't introduce the use of monitors because I was just trying to get the nurses to take blood pressures and understand what that meant. But the Dutch nurses came and were horrified because this American didn't put their new monitors out into the rooms. I said, they don't understand what these machines do. They think they're magic. They think that, they, they think that the monitor actually cares for the patient. Well, I don't want them to use them until they understand what vital signs mean. You know, what's the relationship between a low blood pressure and a high pulse and no urine output in a burn patient? That's what I want them to understand. I don't want them to be running after this alarm. And plus, have you ever tried to get leads to stick to a burn chest? Well, they don't. You know, the, the joke in American ICUs is that the burn nurses know nothing about cardiac arrhythmias. Well, we don't because all our patients have is artifact because the leads never stick. And I'm not going to stick, you know, intradermal leads in my burn patients you know, and introduce infection just so I can tell what their heart rate's doing because they're normally healthy people that get burned. Unless I have some elderly patient with underlying heart disease, I would certainly monitor them. And we always did monitor our patients. We just didn't pay any attention to the cardiac rhythms because I would take some of our rhythms up to the CCU and say, you want to tell me what this is? they go, it's artifact. Okay, whatever. So, but here's this nice monitor. But that's a total aside. Um, so I, I love this picture. Just sitting in the wheelchair reading the new vision, the government newspaper. 
because it's a normal thing to do. And you want to make sure that they get to do normal things as soon as they can. Um, grafting, we won't go in. We, I think we've talked enough about grafting. Um, and there's the mesh graft that the American was horrified by. Um, betadine. Again, these are, I mean, I was dealing with the Dutch people, and my Dutch colleague is sitting in here as I, as I defame her culture. Um, we in America would never have put betadine on a graft. We just thought it was way too fragile for that. But the Dutch did, and these grafts were taking. So I was like, okay, I'm not saying anything about that. I had enough battles to fight, so I'm like, whatever. But, yeah, I wouldn't recommend that. We treated grafts very, very gently. And, you know, it takes five days for the blood vessels in the recipient site to grow into the donor site. Vice versa, I just said that backwards. Um, so you want to be very careful with that graft for five days. You don't want the patient walking. You don't want any pressure on the graft. You don't want to do any physical therapy because it's the vessel-to-vessel -vessel contact that holds the graft in place. We can staple them on, and we did that many times, but it's still friction destroys a graft. Pressure destroys a graft. So if you're going to graft somebody's back, you've got to get commitment from that patient that they're going to lay in their stomach for five days because you can't have them lay on their back. So just a few pointers about that. Um, yeah. We'll look through here. I told you I'd leave you time, and I don't, I'm not. <laughs> I just wanted to say, too, if you have inpatients, especially kids, make sure that there's some place where they feel safe. And typically that would be their bed. Don't ever change their dressing in their bed. They need to have a place that's safe, where there's no pain, where no one's bugging them for anything, and make that their bed. Take them somewhere else to get their dressing changed. And they'll anticipate, they'll scream in anticipation when they go to that other place. But when you take them back to their bed, that's their place of, to be safe. This is my, my little nursing thing. Um, this was actually, this, this is that little guy you saw earlier um, feeding himself. Yeah. That dressing's on his head because we discovered he had burns in his head later that we didn't see earlier. But as the wound heals, then they get happy again. And you can see this one. I just want I, the other reason I'm showing this slide is um, you can see the melanocytes growing in. This kid still has an open wound, but obviously happy. And there's the classic African umbil umbilical hernia. That was not our problem. But <laughs> <laughs> diet, we talked about that. Obviously, the food's going to get fixed in a different place than the hospital cafeteria. We did have. Um, supplemental food to give to moms to feed their babies. That was part of We had our own kitchen in the burn unit because it was designed very much after an American or European burn unit that we sort of dropped into the African hospital. Now, there are issues with that. Anyone want to talk to me about that later? <laughs> we can talk about that. I didn't think that was such a good idea, quite frankly. Um, so returning to society. Just a little bit about reconstruction. These are classically contracted burned hands. Yeah, they don't look like hands, right? Everyone thought they were feet? Yeah, those are hands. And then this is after multiple reconstructions in that same child. So, yeah, um, sugar, I forget. Yeah, I just wanted to mention all those. But think about their, your patient's worldview and why they're doing what they're doing with wounds. Um, I 
I should have made copies of these slides for you, but these are just the resources I used. And you'll notice some of them are very old, and we would never use those today. But I really found that burn care in Uganda was very typical of the way we did burn care in America in the 1970s and 80s. Um, so we're, it was kind of a throwback to me. I was like, oh, it's just like being back in burn care when I started, um, just because of the resources we did and didn't have. Um, so we have like two minutes for questions. Sorry. I said we had way too much material here. Um, I can find out. Yeah. I'm not sure that they do that, but I could make sure that there's. Will they? If you go down to the exhibit where they have the DNA sample Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll do that. Sure. Yeah. In the United States, we did. We never did. And, I mean, we would, they would do, um, the surgeons would sometimes take the patients to the OR for a dressing change because they were going to do some grafting. We didn't do that routinely in Uganda. Um, I think they do it routinely in the States these days. At the Cure Hospital. At the all Cure our, Hospital. All our, our children are sedated. Through, uh, from, uh, okay, yeah. For burn dressing changes, and we use a lot of betadine, and which I was horrified <laughs> <laughs> coming from Canada originally with mm-hmm. the burn unit there. But the betadine really works because of the heat. Um, okay, all um, right. In West Africa, it's so hot, and the betadine just really seems to prevent uh, infection, mm-hmm. okay. and it seems to adhere very, very well. So that that's something that we Thanks. Use uh, yeah, that makes me feel better. Yeah, over here. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, it's a certainly a good alternative. Yeah, I just didn't think about it when I was making my list of. Yeah, we did use that as well. Yeah, gentian violet, it's readily available in the developing world. But it's not something we as Americans use because it stains everything purple, and we don't want that. You know, we don't want that. Thank um, you. Um, the stuff that we, the ghee that we got in Uganda came, you bought it in the store, and it was ma- it was manufactured, actually. Um, if you're out in the village, it probably isn't, and I would go with straight honey then, which is just as effective. I wasn't, I've never, I wasn't really sure what the reason for mixing it with ghee was in the first place, because honey is really the antimicrobial. Um, but the nurses swore by honey and ghee, and the research mentions honey and ghee as well. It just um, provides a hydrophilic cover to keep moisture in the wound. Oh, okay. All right. Thanks. Looks like I knew there had to be a logical reason for it. But anyone else? I see our time's really up. Thanks so much for your attention. And, yeah, I'll upload these slides. <laughs>